And good evening, everyone. This is MetFan Rich on Twitter, Rich Barago, and I'm being joined tonight for the 19th episode of a Metsian podcast with Sam, Mike, and Rich by my colleague, Mr. Mike LaCollin. Mike, how are things in Brooklyn this evening? Sweltering. Oh, it was blazing today. I feel like I, I feel like chicken on a rotisserie, but uh, otherwise, everything's well. How, how are you, my friend? Doing well, doing well. Same here up in Connecticut. You know, uh, the thunderstorms move through, and they're promising me highs in the mid-70s tomorrow and the low-70s on Saturday, you know, when I'll be at the game. So I'll take it, you know, and, and hopefully this is a break. I think we're um, we're ready for some for some autumn weather. And actually, just before we get into the Mets, just a quick weather note. For those in the Northeast who feel like this has been an incredibly humid summer, um, it has, statistically. Uh, dew point is the best way to measure humidity, not relative humidity, but dew point. And this summer has had the highest average dew point, so it's been the most humid on record. Not necessarily the hottest, but the most humid, so now you know. So, Mike, enough on the weather uh, from my perspective, because I can go off on that all night. Um, so, Mike, <laughs> especially with impending hurricane next week, damn, I can go on. But But let's get to the Mets. And so, Mike, the New York Mets, um, an enigma wrapped in a puzzle here because, you know, they start out 12-2. and two. They absolutely go in the tank. They do something in June that I still can't believe. How does a major league team go 5-21 and 21 in a month? I don't know. They do that. But June ends, July starts, and since the All-Star break, the Mets are 24-21. and 21 which ties them for the fourth-best record in the National League since the All-Star break, which is not too bad. Um, And they just completed a road trip in California against, well, they started in Chicago, Chicago, San Francisco, L.A. You can make an argument that all three of those teams are in the pennant race. You can make probably a better argument that two of them are. But the Mets went five and four, so – you know, they're playing good baseball over a fairly sustained period of time. If you take June out, and I know people get mad when you say that, but if you take June out the rest of the season, there are three games over 500, just that darn June. So, Mike, my question to you where I'm going with all this is, is this fool's gold to you that they're playing well recently? Um, some have said that it's actually a bad thing because it will convince ownership that they don't need to be aggressive in the offseason, that they have most of the pieces here, and we'll see more of the same. So, Mike, that's a long way of setting you up, but, but give me your thoughts on, on the 24 and 21, the fact that if you take June out, they're three games over 500, and I know, unfortunately, you can't take June out, but what do you think of this whole thing? I do believe that ownership takes these episodes and – and, and use it to make their decisions moving forward. I certainly believe that wholeheartedly. So the better they play, you know, the better they're going to think they are. Uh, all right, but since July 20, as you say, they're 24 and 21. No, it's not fool's gold. You know, fans are emotional sometimes, and especially we met fans, we know. And when things go wrong, you know, the sky opens up and it just rains buckets upon us. Uh, or at least that's the way we react. You know, everything's a disaster, and 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 we're like that for for good reasons. You know, I, I think. 
for decent reasons. But the truth of the matter is they weren't as bad as they played, per se, in June. Think about what happened to them. They lost Cespedes. They lost Frazier. They lost Bruce. That is the meat of the lineup. You know, so, sure, things went awry, uh, and the offense went south. But look what's happened, uh, you know, since the All-Star break. Uh, McNeil has been somewhat of a revelation at second base. Frazier came back, and then Bruce came back. And together, they provide, if nothing else, somewhat more protection in the lineup for other guys. So, you know, everything has that trickle-down effect. And at, at the end of the season, you know, they're not going to be historically bad. Uh, they they'll be what we pretty much expected expected them to be in light of everything that they've endured to this point. Uh, if we're being pragmatic about it, you know. Uh, but again, fans are emotional and we're frustrated, and, and we just want better things, better decisions, uh, and in some instances, <laughs> better players. Uh, but. Am I happy? Yeah, it's always nice watching a better brand of baseball. So I just hope they make wise decisions moving forward over the next month uh, evaluation-wise and stop wasting their time with things things that just have no bearing on 2019. Yeah, you know, and Mike, what I'm hearing from you is what I hear from most people, which is, Everything you just said, hey, you know what, it's, it's better to be watching winning baseball than losing baseball. Um, but on the other hand, you know, let's be cautiously optimistic because we don't want this late season success to cloud the fact that the team is flawed. The team needs, you know, pieces. One could argue how many pieces, but the team does need pieces. And we don't want to let, you know, basically mask the pain here with um, – with some good plays. So, so I, I think I'll take it as, you know, you, you like what you're seeing, but you don't want to let it get in the way of good, of good baseball decisions that need to be made. And, um, and I think that's right. So, so cueing off of that, Mike, if I had to ask you, all right, so, so there's, they're playing better, some level of optimism. What specifically about this team makes you optimistic? And what are you looking forward to for 2019 from the guys who are here? The pitching is obviously stepping up. They're pitching the way we hoped they would. Uh, in, a, in, in, in a sense, I, I guess, uh, we have a couple of guys in the bulk, guys in the starting rotation. Uh, you know, that I, I still have petty issues with, not all, but uh, the pitching is definitely stepping up. I mean, look what DeGrom is doing. Uh, we're going to get into this in depth, but, you know, Syndergaard just came off his first complete game of his career. Uh, Wheeler is uh, having, let's call it for what it is, a fantastic second half. And that goes post and parcel with with the Mets' 24-21 and record since July 20th. Uh, You know, and over the last week, the the rotation as a whole performed uh, very, very well. So, you know, the next month is going to be 
intriguing to say the least. Uh, but the continuing progress of guys like Nimmo and hopefully McNeil is the real deal. Uh, and Ahmed Rosario, his play of late uh, has been uh, likewise outstanding. You know, from where he's been to where he is, we're, we're talking about a pretty, you know, there's distance between that. And I'll throw this question that we'll tackle later on in the show, but I'm wondering if you think these guys are coming up through the system somewhat less prepared because Wally Backman and Frank Viola are no longer at AAA. Because it seemed with them in place, guys were coming up to the big to the big club somewhat more polished, somewhat more polished. Uh, but I would also point to a lack of, uh, you know, consistency throughout the system from look, rookie level on up. But that's, you know, a horse of another, of another stable. But, uh, you know, it, guys like Frazier and Bruce, it is what it is. That That's just going to be a matter of waiting these contracts out. And hopefully the the infusion of youth, i.e. McNeil and whatnot, you know, that that's promising. And I'll say it again. I, I just want good decisions moving forward, at least for a month, please. Yeah, you know, I, I find it hard to add much to what you said. I, as I watch them, uh, you know, let, let the pitching has been uh, – there was a point, I believe, on Tuesday, before the game Tuesday – that the Mets had the best ERA the last time through the rotation in Major League Baseball, uh, the best starters ERA. Then, you know, uh, Vargas went out and wasn't so good on, on Tuesday. But even with Vargas in the rotation, you know, the last full time through until it got to his turn again, they were sporting the best starters ERA in the game. So it's hard for me to look at that and say there's no reason to be optimistic about this team. No, no, there is, right, because for what you said, DeGrom is, is still a young man. Syndergaard's 26 years old. Mass, I believe, is 26, 27. Vargas a little bit older. Um, you know, I think DeGrom is, what, 29-ish. But these guys are still young. They're in their prime. They're going to be here. Wheeler is, you know, 28, 29 years old. They're going to be here. And it's hard not, not to be optimistic when you have that. And then going further to what you said, with Ahmed Rosario – you're watching the maturation of a ball player on the big league level. Now, some could say that's fun. You know, it's fun to watch him get better and get two and three hits in a game, and, and he's stealing bases with more technique now. Of course, he still has his lapses. He still chases pitches. He still gets thrown out stealing, but you're watching him develop. So one could argue that's good. One could also argue that that's not good, that that development should take place in the minor leagues. Is it the absence of Wally Backman? Maybe. Don't know, but but one thing we could say is no matter what the specific cause, guys are learning on the major league level, and that's not necessarily a good thing. So I think you're spot on there. But I do think there are reasons for optimism. It, it, it's it's players like McNeil Rosario. It's the rotation. It's young arms like Bashler and Drew Smith, um, you know, who need some more polish. But you could see the fact that. This is not a team that you want to, you know, throw the baby out with the bathwater. This is a team that has something to work with. And the key will be what they do with this. I mean, do they skimp out and say, do another 2018 off, 2017, 2018, 
and sign some mid-level guys in their 30s? Well, certainly I hope not because that would not be the way to treat this core. This core needs to be built around and not with, you know, not with bargain basement pieces. So, all right, let's let's focus on the pitching in specific. I know you mentioned you wanted to get into this. Um, and so for those who may have read the write-up about this podcast, and in, in case you've been in a cave and you don't know this, Jacob deGrom now has broken Dwight Gooden's major league record with his 25 starts in a row of giving up three earned runs or fewer. Let that sink in for a minute. 25 starts in a row. The average starting pitcher has about 30 starts in a year. So you're looking at basically a season's worth of work where this guy hasn't given up more than three earned runs. That is phenomenal. You back end that with Noah Syndergaard having just thrown his first major league complete game, absolutely dominating performance in San Francisco, where he talked about the fact that he pitched backwards. Um, you know, he used his off-speed stuff, his secondary pitches to set up the fastball, which is a, the sign of obviously a, a true pitcher. You've got Wheeler, who has found the fountain of youth for some some reason. The guy's been amazing since July 1st. Um, you know, and Matt's is up and down, but when he's on, he's really good. So, Mike, talk to me about the pitching. Talk to me about DeGrom and Syndergaard. What are your observations? Jacob DeGrom. Uh Still a candidate for the Cy Young. Uh, I know there's going to be people who are going to hold his 8-8 eight and eight record against him, you know, and when you put the two together, 16-6 and six for Scherzer, 8-8 eight and eight for for DeGrom, you know, the two are incompar- incomparable. Uh, Scherzer and DeGrom are first and second, respectively, in both whip and strikeouts. Uh, DeGrom leads the majors, as we know, with the 168 ERA and his 230 strikeouts ranked fourth in the major leagues. Uh, he additionally leads the National League with a 2.07 uh, fifth. You know, all all which work in his favor, all which speak to a legitimate Cy Young candidate. Let me take his, let, let me take this streak a little step further. Uh, one minor correction, Rich, he broke uh, Dwight Gooden's record at 24 games. 25 ties the major league record set back in 1910. Think about that, as you say. Soak that one in. Uh, he's made 28 starts to date. If I recall correctly, only four times during the streak has he actually allowed the opposition three runs in a game. So out of that streak, only three only four times, excuse me, four times he actually allowed three runs in a game. Otherwise, he's limited the opposition to two runs or less 21 other times. And 23 times out of his 28 starts. That is beyond epic. That is historic. And I hope the voters take all this into consideration. If Scherzer wins, fine. I wouldn't have beef with that. But talking about a a legitimate Cy Young candidate here, despite this par 8-8 record. Uh, And with regards to Noah Syndergaard, 
you know I've been picking on him this year, you know, and I'm trying to be nice about it because he's coming back from an injury born of just pure stupidity as far as I'm concerned, and that's why I don't mind picking on him. But he threw his first complete game of his, uh, of his career, and he he, he did it with, with great economy. He threw 114 pitches, which averages out to 12 and a half pitches per inning. Uh, and out of those 114, 80, 87 went for strikes for a rate of 76%. That's very good considering, you know, most pitchers 62, 63, 65 on the good end. You know, so that's called attacking the strike zone. Uh, now, and only now, because of this complete game, is he actually averaging six innings a game or per start? Prior to that, he was averaging less than six innings per start throughout his career. Wheeler, for Pete's sake, over his last ten starts, has thrown seven innings, I, I think, at least seven times. You know, so I, I would still say Noah still needs to step it up I think he's a viable trade chip. Would I like to keep him? Yeah, without a doubt. Uh, but I, I question his, his his craftsmanship. I would like to see that improve. I would like to see him become more uh, of a thinker and a pitcher than just a flamethrower who you get 100 pitches out of him or six innings, whichever comes first. And, and each and every one of his starts, you have a bullpen that's required to pick up the slack for another three innings. How do you like that? Your comments are spot on, you know. Um, it, it's And the numbers are stark. I mean, the numbers are very clear. They, you know, like you're talking about, DeGrom is doing something epic. Uh, we could talk about <clears throat> potential Cy Young if you like. Um, I know it's a debate that is on everybody's mind, but with Syndergaard, you know, I, I got the sense that even the organization was getting a bit frustrated with him, you know, with the whole Thor thing, and it's like, hey, you're supposed to be so great, dude, but, you know, like you were saying, Mike, he's been a, he's been a five and a half, he's a basically five and two-thirds, six-inning pitcher most of the season. Well, you know what he did? He went out last week and last Sunday, and he turned that on its ear, and, you know, he threw a 114-pitch complete game, and he, like you said, he was efficient. Wheeler um, got, you know, He's averaging almost seven innings to start. Last night he gets hit in the chest in the fourth inning, and he perseveres through seven. Yeah, um, yeah he did. <laughs> what's that? I said, yeah, he did. He certainly did. And to a point where he, you know, it hurt so badly that he had to get an X-ray, and he had to get a CAT scan, but the guy still pitched three more innings. And – I don't know. I don't know what's happened to this guy, but um, but I'll take I, it, I whatever it is. Without a doubt, I don't want to see anything happen to him. Not at this point. Not after everything that he's been through. I think he's starting to, or he's starting to finally realize uh, the potential that came along with him in that in that trade for, with, with San Francisco. Uh, I just want to correct myself. Over his last ten starts, he's pitched seven innings or more because um, on August fourteenth he pitched seven and two thirds. Eight games, just two out of his last ten starts failed to go seven innings. Amazing. Two out of his really last ten starts. Excuse me. I don't know what I said, but two out of his last ten starts failed to go seven innings. 
And this is a guy who, you know, in 2013-14, he would have the occasional start where you'd say, wow, this is what made him a first-round draft pick. This is why the Mets wanted him for Beltron. But most of his body of work, it was, my God, this guy can't throw a damn strike. And then he has the Tommy John, and then he misses two full seasons. Last year, he gets shut down right before the All-Star break. And what you're left thinking is, here's that guy who had occasional brilliance, but was much more than that, mediocre, couldn't find the strike zone, has an, has an injury history. What is this? What are we doing with this guy? And this year started out much the same way. But then, you know, to use the numbers you just quoted, his last 10 starts have been stellar. And he, you know, he's throwing close to 100. He, you know, he's throwing harder than ever. So I want to get to another question. The reason I brought all that back up, I wanted to get to this other question. This might be a bit out of order, but I think it's okay. So you have Cindergard, who, you know, DeGrom's been great. Cindergard just had a great start, but he's been kind of pedestrian. Wheeler's been amazing. Matz is seemingly putting it together. He has his lapses, but he's more good than bad lately. So here's where I'm going with it, Mike. Mickey Calloway, Dave Island. Um, you could say that, you know, hey, the team has underperformed. You could say that Mickey's done some strange things, and at times it seems like the National League game in particular seems to be beyond his level of comprehension. You know, we've all scratched our heads. So if you're going to do that, you also have to look at some of the things that have changed under their watch for the better, like DeGrom, who's actually gotten a little bit better, like Wheeler, like Matt. Syndergaard will call it a neutral because he's still coming back from a, you know, a debilitating injury. So let me ask you this. Do you attribute any part of – the in, the improvement on the pitching staff and the fast maturation of guys like Bachelor and Smith. Do you attribute any of that to Callaway Island? I do. Uh, let's start with Island. I I do think he brought a completely uh, different approach and mentality that they weren't used to prior, and I think that's good. I think they all needed a swift kick in the posterior and he was the right man to do it. So he's giving them a a a, a, a different perspective uh, into the art form of pitching. Uh, now, this double-barrel approach of hiring Callaway and Island, you know, two pitching coaches by trade, I'm still okay with that. Uh, you know, I, we obviously have our issues with Callaway as a field manager, but... I, Insofar as the pitchers, I, I still I, I, I like this double-barreled approach with you know two well-established pitching coaches, uh, and particularly Ireland. But what Callaway perhaps needs, and I don't want to stray away, he he needs a uh, uh, like an alpha National League guy sitting on his bench serving as his bench coach. Uh, just to bring some National League sensibilities into that dugout and into his train of thought. Uh, but with regard to the pitchers, I do think together they're having an effect. Uh, perhaps Callaway more so in in managing their starts and managing 
their 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 routines because that's something he talks about all the time. And and Island, I think he he brings a a new dynamic, a new perspective. And like I said, all the pitchers, all these starting pitchers in particularly, uh, they all needed a swift kick in the ass, and uh, I think he came and did just that. You know, I have to once again agree with you. I mean, if you look at it, what did Island say in spring training that everybody laughed at? He said, "We're going to have the most bench clearing brawls because we're going to pitch inside. We're not, you know, we're not going <laughs> to take this crap, right?" So they haven't had a lot right. of bench clearing brawls, but they do pitch inside. He does. He definitely. He reminds me of that father who takes the kid to the gym in February when there's snow on the ground and says, okay, stand 30 feet away from me, and I'm going to hit hard balls on the ground at you as hard as I can, and you better feel them. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, he's definitely old school. Uh, I'm just glad there's still a place for guys like him in the game. Right, right. And if you see last night, and I know this is one little thing, one, one little thing, but, but Wheeler gets hit in the chest. By uh, who knows if the exit velocity was on that ball that Turner hit, but whatever it was, maybe we'll call it 100 miles an hour. Certainly was a line drive up the middle. And, you know, Wheeler doesn't really go to first base. He's clearly in pain. All right. Then Callaway and Island come out. And if you notice, Island says like a couple of words to Wheeler and he's back in the dugout. Like, okay, you're fine. <laughs> and, right? And, and Callaway. Right. Seems like he wants to coddle him. Callaway's like, "You okay, Zach? You gonna be all right?" Well, you know, they're they're kind of good cop, bad cop, and it kind of works with the pitchers. I really like it. I've been saying that since day one. I, you know, good cop, bad cop. That's the perfect way to explain it. Hey, Callaway told us day one, "I'm gonna care more about these players than they've ever been cared for before in their lives." You know, and yeah, Island is like, "All right, just rub some dirt on it and get on with it." You know. Exactly. <laughs> it I like works. That. To me, it works. <laughs> it works. It really does. And so that—that's my take on it. My take on it is, and I'll ask you yours, but I think it's pretty obvious that Callaway's coming back and Island's coming back. I—I I think you know that the reports are overwhelming in that regard. But on merit, I'm going to ask you your thoughts. I'll give you my thoughts on merit. I y- yes, I think it, it's clear that the National League game seems to be a little a little bit uh, tough for Mickey at this point. I do think the best remedy for that is to get him like a Larry Boa. Can you imagine like having a Larry Boa as a bench coach, a guy who spent his whole life in the National League, other than, you know, with the Yankees, but as a player in the National League? So get him a good National League bench coach. Um, the stuff that went wrong, you identified it earlier, Mike. In June, what went wrong was they lost Cespedes, they lost Bruce, they lost Frazier, um, the stuff that went wrong really isn't Mickey's fault. And so, and the stuff he's done well, you know, the game is what, 80% pitching, all the cliches are? He's made the pitching better. Um, Lugo has been great. Gesellman, which we want to talk about the bullpen in a minute, but Gesellman has become a major league closer. These are all really good things that happen with the pitching staff on their watch show. On merit, taking money aside, because you all know that factors in for the Mets, on merit, I do think I would bring these guys back. What do you think? I agree. Mickey Callaway deserves to come back. I'm, I don't believe in hiring managers to fire, you know, and firing them one year later. Give him his fair shot. That being said, 
and I'm going to digress here for just a little bit. That being said, what I don't appreciate, I'll, I'll point to these three Newsday articles one more time. Last year, we learned in an article, Newsday said that Fred Wilpon was protecting Terry Collins. Uh, a month later, Newsday reported that Mickey Callaway had become the number one candidate to replace Collins after a very, very lengthy lunch with Fred Wilpon. And then, uh, I don't know, maybe two months ago at this point, on Newsday again, I'm going for the trifecta with these three articles, reported that regardless of the next general manager or executive for that matter, Mickey Calloway will be back. You know, so to me, those are three instances of meddling, and, and that's why this is a, a digression. Uh, but, no, Callaway deserves to come back, and as you say, as we've touched upon, let's just get him uh, a bench coach, a National League guy, who's just going to bring some more National League sensibilities into that thought process. We've seen him make mistakes. We're forgiving. Everyone makes mistakes. It's happening all over baseball, not just here. Sometimes we just have to be more pragmatic than we're willing to be, you know, than than other times. So that being said, uh, plus my digression, that's the only real change I need to see, a third-base coach. And uh, But let's see what this next executive thinks. And, and and that's where my mind really is. You know, we're, we're pondering this and trying to plan that and, you know, hop on the bus, Gus, but we got no executive in place. So I'm kind of... What if the next executive doesn't like Callaway? What if he doesn't like the whole way? What if he doesn't like the way things are structured as is and says, you know what, when I'm doing this this way, I'm gutting it, I'm doing it my way. I'm just saying, and I don't want to digress, but I'm just saying we need an executive in place. But Callaway deserves to come back. I will say that. I don't like hiring managers for the sake of firing them one year later. He's done enough to earn a return. I, you know, you got to blame the players. You have to blame the players at some point. No, I would agree with that. I think Callaway, what I see what's wrong with him, and we've said this, can be fixed by a, by a National League bench coach. I really do. And I think he's done a lot of good. I think his ledger sheet is more positive than negative. And, and, because, look, and circling, circling back to Ahmed Rosario, I give Mickey Callaway full credit for making – you know, Rosario, his pet project on the side and turning him into the baseball player that he's becoming before our eyes. So I give that to Callaway. I do too. He's handled them with kid gloves. You know, he's, he's given him the time off and all that. Um, I give him credit for that. And, and, and this is a nice segue to where I want to go next, which is the bullpen. Um, you know, you bring up Drew Smith, who had a you know, couple of months at AAA, been in AA. You bring up Bachelor, who had came, who came straight from Double A, and yes, I mean these guys are a work in progress. They have, you know, they're not, they're not perfect, but for guys who have limited higher level minor league experience, they're doing really well, and I, I give that to Callaway and I for making these guys pitchers, you know, at such a young point in their tenure. But Mike, I want to go here because when you and I were prepping for the show. You, you brought something out that I thought was quite interesting, that um, 
Lugo and Gesellman are getting a lot of work. Now, I, again, give credit to Mickey Calloway for making Gesellman a closer. Gesellman, when he comes in the game, I have as much confidence in him as I did in Familia. Um, Gesellman is, is, has become a quality major league closer, in my opinion. Lugo has become just plain great. Now, he was good last year, yes, understood. Um, but he's become a swing man in the rotation. He could start for you. He could close for you. He could do the eighth inning, which he does most of the time. But let's talk about workload. Why don't you share with folks what you were saying about the workload that these guys have had and what some of the restrictions might be? Well, you know, let's bring Mickey Callaway into this as well because we used to get on Terry Collins for this all the time for overworking his relievers. Entering the season, do you not recall the Mets saying we're going to impose innings limits upon Gesellman and Lugo? They did. And lo and behold, Robert Gesellman leads relievers in innings pitched. Uh, He's beyond 70 already. And the thing about that statistic is, Amongst the innings pitch leaders, you know, they have like 60-something appearances, 65, uh, some approaching 70. Gisellman only has about 57, and he leads in innings pitch. That's a problem. You're, you're putting a lot on his shoulders. Seth Lugo, he just pitched two innings against the Dodgers. That was the 15th time this season that he's put forth a two-inning effort. So, you know, innings pitch, be damned. Where are they? So the aforementioned pitchers that you brought up, they need to be utilized perhaps more than ever over the over the course of the month, and start giving Lugo and Gisellman a break. Uh, last week, Sam and I, you know, we debated the closer role. Uh, we just put it out there. Are you satisfied with Gisellman as a closer, and would you leave him in that? position moving forward. Sam was all for it. I'm against it. I want him out of that role. He's doing well. And I agree with you. When he comes into the game, I'm feeling good about it. But I just want him out of that role. I want the Mets to seek out, you know, uh, an alternative for, for for closer. I want I want Kisselman back in the bullpen. Uh, but I'm open to that. I'm open to his, his, his future the, 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 the plan for him moving forward. Uh, Lugo, as you say, he's serving his role perfectly. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't touch a thing. I wouldn't change anything. A spot starter, long reliever, short reliever, swing man, you name it, he's doing it. And this is indeed a comeback season for him because uh, last year, didn't, as we know, didn't go so well for him. So, you know, Mickey Callaway, again, is he doing a good job? Is he doing a bad job? Well, you know, Terry Collins did the same thing. How many arms did he abuse? And lo and behold, Callaway is doing it to Lugo and Gisellman. Just saying. Good point. You know, and so what does that mean? I mean, so does that mean that, well, they're going to be like have the holy crap moment and say we've used these guys a lot and we have to back off and so we're shutting them down, you know, as of Tuesday? I mean, I'm not, or I'm throwing that out there. Or do they start limiting their workload quite a bit, you know, to no more than an inning every other day? Or do you think they're going to be like, hey, look, these are young, strong guys. We, um, you know, we need them in, in the roles they're doing. They're, they seem fine, and so innings limit be damned. What do you think they're going to do? You know what? I can't put my finger on the day, but Mickey Calloway has made the switch. I just can't pinpoint when. You know, for most of the season, let's face it, he's a rookie manager, and 
a, a lot of what he did or does is out of desperation in a losing situation. Uh, and, and probably more often than not, that dictated a move here and a move there. I think he's made the switch and, and you know, he's more comfortable in his skin uh, with regard to managing players and managing time and managing injuries and managing the media. I think he's just more at at uh, at ease in the position, in a big city, not in Cleveland. And that's when you start to think a little bit more pragmatically uh, as opposed to out of desperation. Like I said, I can't pinpoint exactly when he made the switch, but I do, in fact, believe he made the switch. And now uh, somebody's in his ear as well, perhaps Island and one faction of this three-headed monster uh, have said, all right, you know, let's let's back off on these guys because I think for a time over the summer, uh, you know, part of that workload can be explained away by desperation and, and hopes for, uh, you know, right in, the, right in the ship for the season, which we obviously know didn't happen. You know, different circumstances on different reasons for doing things. So, in the last 23 games, would you, would your approach be to really limit their innings? Or or do you think it's it's okay to just run them out there? Uh, I, I would just, I would just ensure they, they have sufficient time between appearances uh, there's there's no desperation left in the season for them to, you know, overuse them, tax them, abuse them. You know, you pick the word. So just, you know, Matt, you don't have to shut them down, but uh, you can certainly cool them down, as they say. Um, I think that's what I would do because I, I see no need to shut them down, but I like your term, cool them down. I think they – they need work. Uh, uh, Mickey talks about that all the time, that players, especially pitchers, need regular work on a regular schedule. So yeah, let these guys – pitch. Right, they have to pitch. Pitch every other day, no two days in a row, no more than an inning. And that slack gets taken up by the Bachelors and Smiths of the world and the Zamora, guys you want to see more of. So it kind of works both ways. You know, you're preserving your two assets in Lugo and Gesellman and you're getting a better look at your young pieces. So it kind of might work all around. And, and before we get off the bullpen, I want to mention one thing that I heard last night, that if you look at Lugo and Gesellman's ERA together, it's, it's well below two. I believe they said it was something like 1.65. And the rest of the bullpen is about six. So, so it tells you that – it speaks volumes, you know, it really does. Now, in some cases, you know, these guys are young, like we've been talking about with Smith and Bachelor. And if you remember Gerson Bautista, you know, there are a lot of guys who are very young and contributing to that. But it tells you that you have something to work with, but it also tells you you're going to need to add a couple of pieces. Without a doubt, without a doubt. I mean, it's going to be an interesting offseason, and, and the only – problem I have with that is just that this ownership seems to be waiting and like I say they're going to 
decide on an executive just before the the winter meetings and just punt them into place and expect them to snap his fingers and get things done. That That's the part of this that I don't like. And that's why I think the sooner they get an executive in place, the better. But then again, it makes waste. I don't want to see them make a wrong decision for the sake of making a decision. Uh, but the bullpen needs to address, but we got a lot of good arms in this entire staff that we can move forward with. And, and really, they're not and, and never really have been the issue outside of a bad stretch here and an injury there. The Mets' problems have been on offense, you know, and unfortunately uh, they're in a bind with a couple of contracts at certain positions that entering next season, that much is going to change. Maybe, maybe, depending on how much faith they put in this executive. To me personally, I would like to see them eat Frazier's contract. Uh, asking them to eat Bruce's is too much. So, you know, Michael, that's a great segue to where I wanted to go next, which is, it, you know, it's time to put on your – we've talked about the Mets. We've kind of diagnosed – we've kind of gone around the whole team, you know, between uh, the pitching. We've talked a little bit about why they went into their malaise and how – um, they had offensive problems by the absence of their key bats. So we've kind of diagnosed them. So now I'm going to ask you to put on your tool belt here and think about fixing the Mets. Um, and it has to start with the executive level. So now there are some reports out there this week that they might be leaning toward giving Omar Minaya a second go-round as a chief executive of the organization. So I'll tell you what I think of that, then I'll, then I'll go to you. Um, it, it, it always puzzles me when you go back like that. You know, Omar was let go for a reason. He, now, he did bring them the 2006 season, yes. Um, but it would be interesting to go back to him. Um, I think the biggest benefit of going to him at this point is what you're talking about, which is, um, which is that he is in the organization, he knows the talent, and he could, get, he could hit the ground running as opposed to bringing somebody from the outside. So that would be a benefit of going with Omar. Again, it would be a bit, it'll be a bit ponderous, as you say, to go back to an executive who was here, then was gone, and now is back um, to make him the chief in charge again. But that is a report out there that it might be Omar. So what do you think of that? Omar Minaya was a better general manager than we give him credit for. That whole media fiasco with. Tony Bernazard uh, signing, perhaps signing Jay Bruce in desperation and two late season implosions are probably are, are most responsible for getting him fired. But two late season implosions, you know, is that really on Omar? I, I, I don't think so. Again, you got to blame players sometimes. Go back to 2006. El Duque, Pedro Martinez, Dorner Sanchez, not available for the playoffs. You know, not Omar's fault. Uh, all those guys that he brought in, all older, established players, veterans, I understand what his plan was. All those contracts were were, were timed to expire as the new crop of players was due to come up. And that's exactly what happened. It's only that the, the Madoff 
implosion really just, you know, that ruined everything, including Omar's plan. That, you know, the onus was put on the disaster that was because of the Madoff implosion, et cetera, et cetera. And then you had that Bernazar fiasco, and that's why Omar got fired, because of of perception. But the fact of the matter is that I understood his plan, and his plan was sound. All those guys were set to expire. All the new guys were set to come up in unison, which they pretty much did. And, you know, we call that the rebuilding years under Sandy Alderson. But when, in fact, they were Omar Minaya's players, I don't think he wants to be the GM again. I think he's already said that publicly. But what I would be open to, actually I, I might even dare say I'm in favor of, is him being the team president. Because it seems like Omar Minaya is the only person both Fred and Jeff trust. Out of the 8 billion people on this planet, they only trust Omar Minaya. So make him your team president. And then let him hire a general manager and have that general manager report to Omar Minaya. This way, the general manager and ownership are separated. We will finally have a buffer. And perhaps that will solve this issue of meddling because they're their worst enemies. And maybe we'll get somewhere. Minaya has a good baseball mind. Uh, so I wouldn't mind including him in the operation. I just don't think he wants to be general manager. I don't know if I want to revisit that again. I'm a forward-thinking man. I'm kind of like been there, done that. But I'm more than happy to have him serve as a president and be the buffer between ownership and the general manager in baseball operations. And then moving forward, you need unison from, you know, instructional league, rookie league, all the way on up. It needs to be one standing operated operating procedure. Everyone needs to be on the same page of music. This is how we do things. This is the way it's done. This way all players, all positions become interchangeable mentally, maybe not physically, but at least mentally everyone's on the same page. And that's a fundamental and philosophical, you know, idealism for, for, for a minor league system. But you need a baseball man to implement that. Now father and son are at odds because Fred wants to hire an old-school scout-minded person as the next general manager, and Jeff wants to jump on the new era of analytics and, and things of that nature. So father and son can't even agree. So take it out of their hands. Make Manaya the team president and let him run this operation because they trust him, and he in turn will satisfy all the Wilpons' needs, wants, and necessities. Will they be willing to relinquish that kind of, you know, role, power? I I don't know. I don't know. But until they do, you know, I, I think this is our lot in life. The occasional playoff team, the occasional winning seasons or two or three. 
But you look back since 2002-2003 when they took over sole ownership, we have a losing record. Uh, in fact, their record speaks for itself. Well, you know, I so your 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 basic point, as I heard it, was have Omar be the, the president of baseball operations because he'd be the Wilpons' right hand man. They trust him. We know that, but have an actual general manager in, in role that Omar could be the filter between the Wilpons and the GM, right? Right, right. Hard to argue that. It really is. Um, there's a lot of sense there, and maybe, maybe that is the plan. Now, if that is the plan to have him and then ultimately hire a GM, it gets us right back to our previous point of what the hell are you waiting for? You know, I mean, it's. Well, uh, let yeah. me ask you. Let me ask you this way, Rich. What qualified? What good? Uh, what executive out there? would come to the Mets with preconditions. You understand what I'm saying? What is this going to be a person who will turn to ownership and say, no, your ideas are bad, and if you don't let me run it my way, I'm not taking this job. You understand? That's why we need a separation of ownership and baseball operations. Because they'll be the ones interviewing, and they'll be the ones setting preconditions. What kind of an executive is going to agree to any preconditions if, you know, you feel like you're worth your weight in gold? Imagine Theo Epstein being interviewed and, and being handed a set of preconditions. He would laugh in their face. That's my point. So what guy are they going to interview? What type of person are they going to interview? Are they going to actively seek a yes man? Or are they going to actively seek someone who has a backbone who will potentially tell them, you're a jerk, get out of the way, and let me do it my way? That's where we are. I think that is where we are. And it's going to be very, the next month is going to be very telling. Because if they move quickly, and whether they make Omar GM and they continue to meddle with him, that's one option. Next option is to make him sort of, you know, president of baseball operations and have him hire a GM. One way or the other, shortly after the season ends, we should know what's happening with that. Because, you know, as we all know, as we've heard for years, the beginning of trade discussions and team improvement discussions happen at the World Series where the general managers are all there and they talk to each other. You want to have somebody in place. And certainly the GM meetings usually take place the first week of November and then the winter meetings the first week of December. So you And you have to give somebody at least an opportunity to come in and assess what they have. Now, if that person's Omar, okay, you've, you've kind of covered that. But if the person is still going to be someone from the outside the organization in a GM capacity, you got to get moving here. And so that's my hope. My hope is whether the person is, you know, sabermetrics-driven or old-school talent evaluation-driven or whether it's Omar himself, whatever it is, I would like to see them have a plan and implement the plan so 
the person's first day on the job isn't at the GM meetings because that's my fear. Yeah, that that's problematic. I find that very troublesome. It is. It really is. So, and and the next month will tell the story. You know, if they make some announcements and say, okay, you know, this person's we're going to have a baseball prison baseball operations. We have an active search for a GM. Okay. Or Omar's our guy, you know, he's going to be the GM. Might not be the best set of circumstances, but okay, we have somebody in place who could begin to evaluate. Um, it, it's just something's got to happen. I, I, I logically think they're going to do something well before the winter meetings for all the reasons we've outlined, but they are the Mets, and I worry that they might not. And, um, and that person might not have adequate time to prepare and get familiar with the assets that, that he has. So, um, all right, so we, we've talked about the, the 2018 Mets a lot. Um, this is the 19th episode of the Metsian podcast with Sam, Mike, and Rich. And, you know, and as we do, we talk about that number, in this case, number 19. So let's go to the first place we always go, which is New York baseball in 1919 and mike i know that between you and sam you guys like to talk about the uh, the national league teams the the two national league entrants so why don't you take take us through what the national league looked like in 1919 well actually there wasn't a whole lot going on the dodgers were only 69 and 71 they came in fifth and the giants were 71 and 53 they came in second uh behind the reds obviously the big story of this season was the Black Sox scandal, you know, but that's obviously in the past tense because the season was played and the World Series was played and, you know, all that was disclosed after the fact. But nonetheless, people suspected it, and why not? Gambling was rampant in baseball since its birth. So this was nothing new. And, you know, sometimes in in, in revisionist history, I, I, I find it somewhat laughable that, oh, you know, the, the righteous were like, oh, this is, no, oh, 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 and we're freaking out and breaking out in rashes. No, 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 no. They were never able to police it. And it just got to a point where it just became so, uh, <laughs> uh, I'm lacking a word, so, so, I guess, I don't know what the word to use. Uh, I'll just use an example. The founder of the New York football giants, you know, uh, John Mara's grandfather, he was a bookmaker when he founded the club. And that was in 1925. So we're talking about 1919. And lately I've been delving into the history of the pioneer era, you know, like the 1845 through 1870 and the first five years of professionalism. And gambling was, was as, a part of baseball is green grass and and, and ash bats and, and and you know yarns fun baseballs. It really was. Uh, but the Yankees of the New York City teams finally pulled ahead uh, of the locals with an eighty and fifty nine record. And, and this might be the beginning of when John McGraw started getting a little upset with this upstart organization and in the future would contemplate kicking them out of the polo grounds. Uh, but Babe Ruth had not arrived yet uh, to intensify I, I guess his, his disdain for the Yankees. Uh, but they were the lead uh, 
club in town that year, 1919. Yeah, they were 80 and 59 under Miller Huggins. So His second um, season, I, yes. Yeah, I assume they had a couple of rainouts because that adds up to 139 games, which is uh, which was not the the full season. Well, they must have had a couple of rainouts. Truth of the matter is, don't forget the year. Uh, last year uh, was America's involvement in the war. The season was mm. cut down considerably in 1918, and 1919 was just a continuation of that. That could be it. Yeah, yeah, I didn't even think of that. Um, you know, and as I scroll through the Yankee statistics here, I, I don't know what it is, Mike, but, but every time I see the guy's name, I laugh. Wally Pip. Did he ever think his name would become a verb? I mean, uh, yeah. seriously, you know, now in this day and age of baseball, we still say this guy, Wally Pip, that guy, you know? But how much vocabulary have we have we uh, inherited from baseball? A lot. Sure. Absolutely. Now, looking at Wally, he was he hit two seventy five that year. He, um, I guess, he wasn't much of a home run hitter. He had seven home runs that year. Hit two seventy five. Uh, he had fifty RBIs. So, um, you know, certainly not um, not earth shattering statistics. Yankees had a catcher named Muddy Rule, which I think is pretty funny. Muddy Rule, he hit 240 that year with no home runs, so he wasn't much of an offensive player. Um, you look down the pitching staff, not a lot of not a lot of names that you would know. Um, you know, Jack Quinn, Bob Shockey, um, Hank Thormalin. So you know, not household names here, but like you said, this was the beginning of the Yankees coming into prominence. It was. Uh, more more than you think, Bob Shockey would eventually become a well, one of the Yankees' great pitchers leading up to Murderer's Row in, 20, in uh, 27. Uh, he stuck around that long. And, you know, seven home runs. Home run Baker hit 10. This is still the dead ball era. That's a lot, considering the dimensions of those ballparks, uh, to hit something over... Uh, an outfielder's head, uh, they played for triples. They played for doubles and triples. They didn't play for home runs. That hadn't happened yet, and it's still the dead ball era. So the seven and ten home runs is a lot. You look up and down that lineup, uh, those on-base percentages are all, you know, somewhere around 350 and above. That was the game, getting on base and moving players over and, and you know, the base the base game. Uh, but, of course, Babe Ruth would change it all. But a home run baker got his nickname because he hit dingers, as that kid from Little League said. Uh, Ten this season to lead the Yankees. But, again, that was a lot for the day. Yeah. It's all context, right? Dead ball era. And, uh, yeah. And it's always interesting. Uh, I wish wish baseball was a fusion of what it's become today and, you know, uh, the – the mentality of the dead ball era. I wish there was some kind of fusion now. I'm sure the game would be much more exciting. You're right. You're, I mean, and I think what we're seeing, tell me if you see it differently, but I think what we're seeing is a morphing away from the the only outcomes that are acceptable are strikeout, home run, or walk. I think um, I think we're starting to see that, that teams are starting to value, you know, I don't want to say small ball, but, you know, situational baseball a little bit more. Even even Mickey, uh, speaking of our own manager, 
while it's not a lot, you, you've seen a couple more hit and runs in the second half of the year. I think he recognizes that you need to try to score in diversified ways. And hopefully you're going to see more of that in baseball because it is much more exciting. It, the, the, like you always say, the triple is still the most exciting play in baseball. You know what? I, I think Mickey and other managers who, who they, they like throwing the game a change up here and there, but I think in the midst of its extremism and this, you know, leaning towards analytics and that kind of mentality and that kind of baseball, this is only the beginning. You know, soon both leagues, every division, every team, it's just going to be rife with this kind of mentality. So I think we're still in the midst of extremism. I think it's going to get worse, Rich, before it gets better. Oh, I hope you're wrong. Going to be one guy, of course there's going to be one guy who comes along and, and and plays, you know, dead ball era tactics and wins a World Series, and then everyone's going to copycat that again. Right. Right. Well, you look at that Dodger team we just saw the past three days. I didn't realize how all or nothing they are. I mean, because even, you know, Cohen and Darling were saying that the Dodgers are up there to do one thing. They're up there to ball the ballpark, and that's what their game is. They're they're not particularly good defensively. They don't really seem to care. They play guys out of position. They're really just trying to get as many home run hitters in the lineup as they can. And they have great starting pitching, best in the National League, and are great pitching, I should say. Not their, their overall pitching. ERA is the best in the National League. They have that. They have a lot of guys who get the ball to the ballpark. They devalue defense, and they go with it. You know? Yeah. And, and if, you just, if you watch, it's robotic. It's robotic. Um, all right. So now moving to our uh, second-to-last feature of the show, we always talk about the Mets who have worn the episode number. So we are on episode number 19, and um, as I look at the list of Mets who have worn 19, it, it's a really interesting list of people here. It's kind of all over the place. So I'm going to throw a couple out, Mike. I'm sure you have the list on your own. Um, I'll I'm throw watching. a couple out. I'm sorry? I got it. I'm watching. I'm looking. Okay, cool. So what I'll do is I'll I'll comment on a couple of them and ask you to do the same. So I'll, I'll try not to take all the good ones, so to speak, right? <laughs> um so the first one that jumps out to me is the first Met to ever wear 19, which is Ken McKenzie in 1962. And I wasn't born then, but I, um, I've heard the story, which I find hysterical, that uh, Ken McKenzie went to Yale. And when the Mets were struggling in 1962, he was about to get a start. And supposedly Casey Stingle went up to him and said, Kenny, you went to Yale, right? And McKenzie said, yeah, and he goes, all right, go out there and pitch against them like they was the Harvard. I think that's hysterical. And we've heard that story a thousand times, and I think it's great. So so that's Ken McKenzie. Um, Moving on, I'm going to leave a couple of the the other ones for you to comment on. Um, So I, I have to talk about Anthony Young. Anthony Young, of course, has that infamous record for uh, most starts without a win, and he's one of those guys who could who, who pitched well enough to lose all the time. And he had that incredible run in 1993 where he just could not get a win. So Anthony Young is, is infamous in Mets history. Um, I'd like to comment on Ryan Church. 
Um, the Mets traded their young, supposedly young stud, Lastings Millage, for Ryan Church after the 2007 season. And um, I always liked Ryan Church, you know. Uh, very solid player, had some power, excellent outfielder with a great arm. Um, and when, when we think about Ryan Church, though, we don't think about one thing. We think about the concussion in Atlanta, and we think about the Mets right after that game putting him on a plane to Colorado, making him play in the thin air after that. And as it turned out, he was never the same. I mean, the man's brains were scrambled. And uh, they didn't manage it well. They didn't put him in any kind of a concussion protocol. And it definitely had a, an incredibly detrimental impact on his career. So when you think about Ryan Church, at least when I think about Ryan Church, I think about that. And um, I'll comment on one more here. I'm going to go back in time a little bit to a guy that you and I have talked about, Mike. Um, a guy who had two stints with the Mets, Tim Foley. He wore number 19 in 70 and 71. He was in the Rusty Staub trade along with Mike Jorgensen. Um, and then he made his way over to Pittsburgh when the Mets um, – well, he made his way back to the Mets. The Mets then traded him to Pittsburgh for Frank Tavares. Tim Foley, I believe his um, his nickname was Crazy Horse. He was one of those guys who would basically you know, do anything. He would run through a brick wall for you. He wasn't the most talented guy, but solid player fundamentally solid, uh, wore glasses, which is kind of rare for an infielder. He wore those glasses out in the field. So Tim Foley, two stints with the Mets. Um, unfortunately, he wasn't on any of the uh, of the winning teams. But um, good, solid player who was a part of the Pittsburgh Pirates in 1979 when they won the World Series, so at least Foley got his ring. So, Mike, number 19, talk about a few guys. Tim Foley was one guy I never, I was never able to warm up to uh, him, nor Ron Gardenhire, who's on this list. Two players I just was never able to warm up to. I, I can't explain it, uh, and I'm not about to now. And uh, who, who did uh, who did you mention here previously? I wanted to say something. Uh, for whatever um, reason, my age froze, and uh, I'm all out of whack. I mentioned Anthony Young, Ken McKenzie. Yeah, uh, Anthony Young. He was such a nice guy. I, I hated to see him go through that. He was such a nice guy. He really was. Uh, he was. That whole time, throughout that whole time, he maintains his composure. Uh, and, oh, man, that, that sucked. How can you say it otherwise? Uh, Jay Bruce is obviously the, the present wearer of number 19. And I'll be honest with you, Rich, I was never down with that acquisition from day one. Uh, it cost it's, – it's a move point now, but it cost us uh, Dilson Herrera. I didn't agree with it then, even though, you know, Herrera is not panning out as we speak. Uh, it, it was just the mentality at the, at the time. I was looking for something up the middle. And, you know, as far as I was concerned, Jay Bruce was part of that – switch to win now mentality and it ruined what I thought was going to be our second baseman and shortstop of the future thing and there's a lot you know that uh, about Jay Bruce that just reminds me uh, about uh, Jason Bay uh, to me I think the two uh, were acquired for the same exact reasons and, and partly out of desperation uh, okay 
uh, you know, changed my mind. <laughs> That's all I can say. Ryan Church, he, Ryan Church has become a moment in time. Every time something goes wrong, injury-wise, you know, we always point, oh, well, ever since Ryan Church, ever since Ryan Church, right? We always point to that moment when, when Ryan Church had the concussion and, as you say, he got put on a plane and that that was that was uh, as I like to say ponderous. Uh, there's some uh, you know pedestrian minor leaguers on this list. Sandy Alomar, I shouldn't say pedestrian. Sandy Alomar, uh, Scott Erickson, Jeff Conine, Lenny Harris, Roger Cedeno, uh Leo Foster. Another one of those guys, you know, when you bought you for I don't know every Tom Seaver, there was at least eleven Leo Fosters and Tom Halls to be had. You know what I mean? <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, but I, I don't hold it against them. Uh, but the obvious name on this list is Bob Ojeda. Uh, what a pro, what a vet. Uh, the perfect guy to compliment the younger Dwight Gooden and Ron Darling and, and Sid Fernandez and even, you know, Rick Aguilera. Uh, a perfect veteran for that situation, for that rotation. Uh, sorely needed. Uh, had the best season of that rotation in 86 uh, didn't need Carter you know the other pitchers needed Gary Carter Bob Ojeda did not need Gary Carter to be Bob Ojeda what are your impressions of Bob Ojeda because you actually got to see him more than I did yeah Bobby Ojeda look you know if you're a Mets fan and and you're still riding the high of 1986 which I still am because there hasn't been a high like that since um, you have to think about a couple of guys who gave that to you. And those guys, you, you know, you could never have a bad word to say about Gary Carter for keeping that game six going. Keith Hernandez, who got the hit in game seven to, to really change momentum. Sid Fernandez, we all know what he did in, you know, in shutting down the Red Sox after Darling didn't have a good start. But how about Bobby Ojeda? How about being down two games to none at Shea, going to Fenway, down two games? Bobby Ojeda goes in there, a left-hander with that wall and the whole thing, and shuts his former team down. Then in game six, what does Bobby Ojeda do? He comes back to Shea with the Mets down three to two, and he gives you an excellent start to give them a chance to win the ball game. So Bobby Ojeda, man, I'll – he could do no wrong in my eyes. He he never could after that World Series. He, there's nothing that man could do that would not be great to me. And not to mention he's fantastic on the air. He really was. Um, I miss him less now that Nelson Figueroa has gotten so good. But Bobby O, he is the man. Uh, you know what? Figgy has come a long way. He really has. I'll give you that, and I'll give him that as well. Uh, but I do miss Bobby Ojeda uh, on, on the post and – you know, pre-games, he was excellent, man. He just got right to the point. And I I really hung on his every word. I really did. I enjoyed him immensely. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, Bobby, uh, he, I don't know, he, he was just one of those guys when the Mets picked him up, it was like, okay, here's a serviceable left-hander. We're the Mets I mean, after the 85 season. We have Ron Darling. We have Sid Fernandez, Rick Aguilera, Dwight Gooden, who was coming off one of the best seasons in, in Major League Pitching history. What do we need this guy for? What do we need this junk-balling left-hander for? Well, I'll tell you what we need him for. We need him because he saved our ass in the 86 World Series. That's what we needed him for. And yeah. it's amazing how that worked out. With all those big names, it was Bobby O, like you said, 
who had statistically the best year in 86, and Bobby O, who, as far as I'm concerned, had as big of a hand as anybody in the 86 World Series win. Uh, I, I think he's, you know, proved positive. Uh, there's something to be said for being a craftsman. You know, craftsman, Bobby Ojeda. Uh, the screwball, you know, or whatever you want to call it, it was basically a screwball. Tug McGraw called it a screwball. Darting away from the right-handed hitters, he was unintimidated by the wall. Of course, it didn't hurt that he had played in Fenway as a Red Sox player, but um, he was unintimidated by the wall with the Mets' backs against the wall, being down two games to none. And uh, he just got it done. Like you said, he was a craftsman. A vet- he wasn't really a veteran at that point, but he was a craftsman. You know, He went out there, and he's like, okay, I have a job to do, and I'm going to do it. And he gave them the win to turn the series around. So, I'm gonna all give, right. I'm going to give one more person an honorable mention, Johnny Monell, uh, for reasons Winter League Baseball, a uh, couple of championships with uh, Caguas. So I just wanted to give him some uh, some mention. I'm sure my cousin well, will appreciate that. <laughs> do it. No, and he's from Bronx. He's from the Bronx. Yes, he is. He's a local guy. Absolutely. And... He, uh, he, where did he end up? He ended up in Cleveland, I think, and then the Mets got him back. I think he might be in the Mets organization right now, right? Uh, I can't answer that for sure. I'm going to try. I think he is. I think he's back in the Mets organization. Um, all right. So with that said, we have come to the end of episode number 19 of the Metsian podcast with Sam Rich and Mike. Mike, as always, it's been, uh, I'm getting all nostalgic here. It's been uh, five and a half years we've been doing this, and every time it's a pleasure. I want to thank you for your partnership here in the podcast. It's been great chatting baseball with you tonight. And you know what's next. We have a last word to do. So, Mike, what's your last word tonight? First, likewise, my friend. I love talking baseball with you. It's always a pleasure. Uh, my final word. Uh, pitch. <laughs> Keep up. Just great pitching, uh, and give us something to work with heading into next year. Pitch. Uh, right now, that's what's hot. That's what, you know, uh, that's Mets' tradition is pitching. So keep pitching, guys, and let's see what kind of uh, pitching staff we, we can assemble out of this prop into next season. So I'll leave it at that. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that at all. Um, I'm going to say hope. I'm going to say that the play over the past, well, really, you know, it, yeah, it's been over the past six weeks, but really it's been everything but June, gives you some level of hope. Now, it's not false optimism. You know, the Braves are young, and, and they're going to be there, and the Phillies might be there as well. I think the Nats are going to rebuild. But um, But I think what we've seen is that, there's work to do, but it's not hopeless. It's not a five-year rebuild that seemingly is necessary. So there is some hope um, based on what we've seen, and I have that hope. I hope I'm not uh, you know, being sold a bill of goods here, but I, I have that level of hope. And um, when the Mets say they intend to be competitive in 19, I'm okay with that. I think they can be. They have to be smart, but I think they can be. So I have some hope. And um, and so, Mike, with that, until our next one, which will be a nice uh, even in round number 20, uh, we will sign off for the evening. And, and you know, Mike, w- what is the only thing left to say at this point? 
Let's go Mets, baby. You got it. Let's go Mets. Mike, have a great night. Thanks for for a great podcast, and, and good night, everybody. Let's go Mets. Good night, all.